following is a message by Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Please give attention to the public reading of God's inspired word. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you to be present with us as we seek to hear your word. May we Treated with great respect, knowing the one who finally speaks it, may we receive it and apply it to our hearts for your great glory. Amen. Please be seated. This is an appropriate text, it seems to me, for our times. If ever there were a practical biblical text, more appropriate, please show it to me. I noticed a few weeks ago on the first page of the LA Times a not-too-explicit picture of a stripper lap-dancing for a National Guardsman in New Orleans, and the general manager of the Deja Vu strip club, speaking of the girls he had managed to procure, said... They are here to be part of the Reconstruction. (laughs) Uh, Not a word, of course, of judgment on the part of the wonderfully conservative LA Times, neither. Uh, Porn is the norm, says Evangelium. It's a subject that therefore should interest us. I read the other day that one out of two American men visits porn sites at least once a week, and many every day. That means that one out of two men that you meet, and you may not apply this here, uh, hopefully, uh, will be engaged in some form of deeply committed obsessional lust. Indeed, though, a Christianity Today survey says that 37% of ministers, including, as George Scipione notes, Some reform ministers have admitted having struggles with pornography. Well, somebody must be paying the bill, for 
The porn industry is estimated to be a $13 billion industry, and once they get it onto cell phones, that will double. And so we are dealing with an incredible social phenomenon. Rosemary Radford Ruther, that uh, powerful feminist, argued that patriarchy was the great beast, the work of the devil. But it appears more and more to me that this liberated, egalitarian, pornographic, obsessed culture looks far more dangerous for women. What is happening in Christendom in South Africa, one out of every three children is having sex by the age of ten. A Cambridge professor in England writes a book on the goodness of lust. I could go on. I think I'll stop. I think you get the picture, so to speak. I think the problem is not just a moral one. It's a theological one. As Dostoevsky said in The Brothers Karamazov, without God, all things are permissible. We might add to that, though, a new God makes things even more permissible. Uh, Neil Donald Walsh, in his book, Conversations with God, this is the new God, Uh, God tells him, mix what you call the sacred with the sacrilegious, for until you see your altars as the ultimate place for love and your bedrooms as the ultimate place for worship, you see nothing at all. This is the new God that is behind our pornographic obsession. Well, This is the context in which we hear this word of Paul. How do you apply this? How do you speak about Paul's word to us in a sexually obsessed, morally vacuous culture without being prudish, narrow-minded, or moralistic, which, of course, loses all your hearers? Well, what does the text say to us? Let's just look at some of the textual affirmations. We begin with the, uh, the adverb loipon, finally, and all you budding exegetes will recognize this literary clue. It is the opening of the paranetic section. It's sort of like the high point of the practical application of the letter. All that Paul has taught now will be focused on applications of a very practical nature. In Ephesians 6.10, we have, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true. But the other sign, it seems to me, is that the three previous verses of chapter 3 are a sort of benediction as Paul brings the dogmatic section to a close. You've noted that it ends, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus make you to increase. May he establish your hearts. And then finally. So we're in the presence of Paul now focusing on the application of this theology. And he does so with great urgence. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. This is not an appeal for some kind of general wisdom or morality, but a kind of living that is to be described as living in the Lord Jesus. It's a very Christian way of thinking and acting. But that urgency you find in verse 8, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, 
Paul, it seems to me, can hardly be more urgent in his application of this section. It's the exhortation to walk and to please God. In other words, Paul wants this to be a lifestyle, not a series of unrelated acts. And uh, really, to live this way determines or depends upon the way we think. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he says in Ephesians 4, 7, in the futility of their minds. And so the problem, before it becomes action, is a fault of thinking. But the reason for this exhortation, and I think I want you to understand this, that the exhortation is essentially to keep yourself free from sexual immorality, is the will of God, and it is for your sanctification. The holy will of God requires a holy people for a holy witness to an unholy world. And the holiness of God, or your holiness, which is the will of God, involves this, that you keep yourself free of sexual immorality. This verb has to do with abstaining or separating oneself intentionally from this way of acting and thinking. I was interested as I did a word study on the verb apakistai, that it is the verb in Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is separated from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Well, if that's the way God relates to sin and our sin, that is the way we need to relate to this particular problem we all face. Pornea, sexual immorality, uh, touches various things in Scripture, prostitution, promiscuity, fornication, adulteries. The Bible gives all kinds of examples of sexual deviancy, especially in the book of Leviticus, and they are all an abomination to the Lord. And as we take a, a look at all that, it seems that there is one form of sexuality that is not, and that is heterosexual monogamy. So Paul is comparing that to everything else that's sexual. And for him, it's extremely important to keep this distinction going. Uh, he mentions that God gave over the pagans to the lust of their hearts to impurity. In verse 26, to dishonorable passions, Romans 1. Well, let me just uh, stop for a moment and highlight the fact that this particular exhortation, if I'm reading this epistle correctly, is really the only specific exhortation in the entire epistle. I say specific. There are general exhortations to increase, to abound in love, and so on. But this is the only specific command, and it is twice tied to holiness. In verse 3, your sanctification. And in verse 4, where Paul now says, each one of you should know how to control his body in honor and holiness. Uh, what Paul means by this controlling one's body is uh, 
a great debate. Is it self-control through abstinence? That would be one way of thinking about it. Or as the French commentator Charles Masson suggests that this phrase, to know how to control one's vessel, is the actual term in the Greek, skuos, uh, is actually an exhortation of Paul to get married, uh, to choose for oneself a vessel, which apparently in rabbinic literature was a term for a woman, uh, which seems to give some support to uh, Dan Brown's notion of the Holy Grail. But if you haven't read that novel, you won't know what I'm talking about. Um, Be that as it may, whether it is self-control or whether it is controlling oneself by actually uh, being married, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.2, Paul wants us to live sexually pure lives, as verse 5 says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That seems to me to be a significant phrase to which I will return. And then it the text or the pericope ends with the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we solemnly warned you whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. Well, if I'm right and this is the only specific exhortation in this whole letter and it is surrounded by so much urgency, so much uh, invoking of God's will and God's anger against such acting, we can surely <laughs> conclude that Paul is deadly serious when he exhorts us to keep ourselves free from sexual immorality. How, how appropriate this is for us and for our children in an, in an era where we cannot turn on the television or open the internet without being assaulted by Pornography. I remember my young son, he was 14, and he came to us and he said, I need to apologize. This is Toby. Um, he said, uh, I went on a site and there were some pornographic images. I want to apologize to you, my parents. So I said to him, well, Toby, what, we sh what should we do? To my great surprise, he said, rip out the computer. Now, we didn't rip out the... Well, I can't remember. It got back in somehow. But, uh, <laughs> but I just was so impressed by that initial desire to be holy and to do exactly what this text suggests. Our culture, you see, begins to look more and more like the one to which Paul was writing. And it's interesting then to ask, well, to whom did Paul write this exhortation? Paul, as you know that, no, is addressing ex-pagans, what we innocuously call Gentiles, <laughs> who once did not know God, he says, verse 5. And in chapter 1, 9 and 10, he identifies them as those who turned from idols. So, you have to understand Paul's words in the light of this context of pagan sexual lawlessness. In verse 5 of our text, he 
talks about the passions of the pagans who do not know God. In other words, the first and foremost problem of sexual immorality is not a weak giving in to debauchery, but it stems from a willful ignorance of God, a defective apostate theology. And in a certain sense, Paul would say to us that the great indicator of our orthodoxy would be our sexual behavior. He certainly draws this out in Romans 1, where the refusal of the nature of the true God, which is the creator, uh, is a dishonoring and a refusal to give thanks to him and to become futile in one's thinking, Romans 1.21. It's very interesting. I wish I was preaching on this text, Julius, but I'm not. Uh, but this is a fascinating text as well. Um, how a false view of God gives rise to a false view of worship. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and reptiles. Verse one to Verse 23 of chapter 1, which in turn gives rise to false sexuality. Verses 24 and 26. You have the exchanging of the glory of the immortal God for images, which leads to the changing of the natural use for that which is against nature. And the verb metalasso is the same. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. So there is an exchanging of the nature of God and the worship of God, and it naturally follows that there is a, an exchanging of the nature of sexuality. And so Paul, you see, sees pagan sexuality. I seem to be giving the lecture of next week, but uh, this is just purely providential. Um, Paul sees the importance of a clear understanding of pagan sexuality as... Uh, essential to an understanding of pagan thought and, of course, the antithesis of biblical thinking. The amoral gods or idols on Mount Olympus were personifications of the forces of divine nature. And so sex becomes part of that experience of the power and the divinity of nature. And in a certain sense for pagans, sex is God. Some of the early church fathers, in particular Tatian and Clement, saw the essential conflict in their day as the confrontation between the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and the goddess of unbridled erotic sexuality, Aphrodite. I remember I had one chapter in a book I wrote, The Coming of the Goddess to Christian America. It sort of picks up that same conflict. Now, the... Uh, classic form of this sexual perversion, of course, the equivalent to Hollywood in the ancient world was the Greek theater, which was notorious for the use of cross-dressing, gender-bending, androgynous themes, and on a more popular level, sort of like the ancient TV and the internet, erotic charms, spells, and potions for the provocation of lust. Well, see, these people turned away from that. They turned from idols. And part of that turning away 
is a turning away from this perverse sexuality. And so in the final part, I have a few minutes, there is brought to our minds here what it means for us and what it meant for those Christians to now live as Christians, freeing themselves from sexual immorality. In other words, as an essential part of the Christian life. It's interesting that Paul describes these folks and their experience with three verbs. You turned to God. That's the already of the Christian experience. To serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. (laughs) So you've got the already of the turning away from the idols to the true God. You've got the present serving of God and then the awaiting of that future moment of the appearance of of the Lord. The already has clearly taken place in the lives of these folks. They have turned from idols. It's the classic Old Testament verb, uh, shuv, to turn, to repent. And uh, this is what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. You cannot serve the Lord until you have turned and repented. These folks went through a theistic conversion. They surely understood the nature of the Lord whom they were then to serve. Carl Jung said about our Western culture, to be in touch with one's inner divinity, this is pure paganism, it is necessary to turn away from the holy other God of the Bible. (laughs) Here are, you see, one of the great thinkers of our modern time, understanding the power of the notion of the God of theism and saying we'll never bring about this pagan agenda if we do not reject that kind of a God. To serve the true and the living God, the sense of living, you see, is the idea that God has a real and true identity distinct from the creation. He is indeed the God who is there, as Francis Schaeffer used to say a number of years ago. The creation is not divine, The creator is, and God is known through his works, and we are able to know him in that sense. And so the already of turning away from idols is the Christian experience of which Paul speaks in in chapter 2, that they accepted the word of God as it really is, the word of God, not the word of men. These are the pagans who have been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've been grafted into Israel. They are loved by God and chosen. And this wonderfully is a fulfillment of prophecy. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. As we see our culture implode, let's remember that wonderful vision as we look to what God will one day do. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You see, we have to call for theistic conversions in our time. So often we make appeal to people's feelings and to other elements, but these people clearly turned to the living God, the God who is the creator 
But he's also, of course, the redeemer. And that's the second part of this, the not yet to serve this true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven. You know, we do await that future coming. Job said, like a slave who longs for the shade and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, well, we wait for the appearing of Christ. Job didn't say that. I mean, he didn't add that in. The Apostle Paul says, of course, in this tent we groan. But we're not just waiting and groaning. We're actually serving and waiting. Well, what do these two verbs mean? Serve, surely, must mean what uh, Paul says in Romans 1.25. The truth, the lie, is that we worship and serve the creation. The truth is that we worship and serve the creator who is blessed forever. More and more in our time, I believe, we do need to reemphasize the doctrine of creation as Reformed theology always has as we seek to speak about morality. But uh, it is the creating God who creates the distinction in the cosmos that lays down the essential notion of holiness. He is holy because he is set, set apart from the creation, and we are holy as we find our divinely intended places in the universe he made. Male and female distinctions are holy. Holy matrimony is part of God's plan. And that must be kept separate from all other unholy sexual unions. This is part of our witness today. Didn't seem like much 20, 30 years ago, but the more our culture implodes, the more this kind of Christian living that understands God's holiness becomes prophetic. In Ezekiel we read, And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And Paul exhorts these Thessalonians to live properly before outsiders. Hey, I know some of you listening to me right now are struggling with sexual immorality. Well, how do you flee? How do you keep yourself free from that? Well, first of all, by realizing that it fails to honor the God-given distinctions of biblical sexuality, of heterosexual monogamy. That is the will of God, your sanctification. But then, also because we're called upon to wait for his son from heaven, true love waits. We wait in the power of the gospel. The gospel brings us to an understanding of who God is. Creation is no longer felt as a curse and a burden, but a joy. But waiting, of course, implies faithfulness, as Israel walking in the desert did. God says in Deuteronomy 8.2, I wanted you to walk these 40 years in the wilderness to know what is in your heart. Our sexual behavior is part of our heart endurance to the covenant Lord. But true hope, for rather, true faith, true love waits also in the sense of what we anticipate to come. We love the Lord because he is our righteous divine lover. 
Paul's hope for the church is that he could present her to her husband as a pure virgin. And one day we will indeed see Christ, the pure virgin man, our righteous husband, face to face. And so we serve the living God and we wait to meet our righteous husband face to face. These are the reasons why Christians will refuse sexual immorality. But of course we do it in the strength of Christ, who lived a pure, sexually pure life for us. His active obedience in the area of sexuality grants us the gift of holiness. And by obedience we will serve him. Let me end encouraging you with the words of Paul. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Copyright 2007, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.